Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Real estate property management is an essential component of maintaining a property and its value in the market, not to mention attracting good tenants. Owners and landlords who are busy, own several properties, or who own out-of-state investments will certainly benefit from hiring a professional property management company. But finding a reliable management company that can efficiently handle the running and maintenance of your property is absolutely essential, not only for peace of mind, but also to ensure the maximum market value of the property. A property management company takes care of all the details so you can focus on growing your investments, which is exactly what we want you to do. So having a good property management company on your side goes a long way to ensuring easy, profitable, and stress-free investing. It can bring you hassle-free rentals and maintenance while optimizing your cash flow and your return on investment. It's important that the manager, the company, and the overall business ethics inspire confidence and trust in you so you're completely comfortable in assigning the property over to them. You know, I often refer to property managers as asset managers because if you stop and think about it, it's not just the property that they're managing, it's really your assets. So in a moment, my guest and I will talk about some of the things that you should look for when you're interviewing or hiring your property manager. It's my pleasure to introduce Linda Liberatore. Linda is the founder and president of My Landlord Helper and SecurePay One, a unique virtual assistant solution for do-it-yourself real estate investors. Linda is a motivational speaker and author of two books, Daily Inspirations to Achieve Your Real Estate Investment Goals and My Landlord Helper, a new book. So Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marco. I'm so pleased to be here. I'm glad to have you on. I remember first meeting you when you were a host to a panel discussion that I was on back in February, and I got talking to you and learning a little bit about your business and your book, and then you came up with another book called My Landlord Helper, which is self-titled to the website you have, which I took a look at and it was great, and you have me intrigued with what you do. But I have come to learn that you are very knowledgeable about property management and how to interview and hire and screen your property manager. And I thought, well, that is a great topic for our audience. So before we get into a discussion about property management, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into this space and about my landlord helper at a high level. And then we'll maybe get into it a little more later. Okay, great. Well, a little bit about myself. I've been working with technology solutions and real estate investors for years. So my landlord helpers, SecurePay One, we're kind of, I'll call it the combination, the marriage of the two. So I've always worked with productivity tools and training and worked for a development team. And I've always worked for people that were buying real estate investment property. So it's always been kind of a passion, I'll say, of mine and to kind of make those work together. 
And with that, we get in, I'm involved with a lot of different real estate investment groups. I go to um, probably more than my fair share between national and locally. I'm out of the Chicago area where we probably have 10 local groups that are, you know, kind of real groups that are people that are investing in real estate with real challenges. So we have a pretty unique perspective on the property management piece and how important that is, as you know. Yeah, very much so. You know, I often say that with property management, you live and die by your property manager. And I know that sounds a little extreme, but they are such a critical team player on your team that you can't overlook it and you can't take it too lightly. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, Marco. Whenever I hear you say that, I think, boy, there's no truer words. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to ask you the most obvious of questions here, but I want to hear it from you. So why is it so important to screen or interview your property manager? Well, you know, there's probably a number of reasons, but I think that the first is you're putting a lot of faith and trust in your whole cash flow. It depends on that part of the wheel working as it planned. You know, when you sit down with a spreadsheet, some type of analysis tool, and you decide what the right property is for you, it's all dependent on all those numbers fitting in there as they should. So now you're giving, I'll call it the keys over to somebody else to actually drive that vehicle and get it to your destination. So that's a key role in making sure those numbers are coming in. So what fluctuates, of course, in any budget is the month to month numbers. So repairs, et cetera, you can't necessarily, you can certainly be proactive, but some of that you can't plan for. But when it comes to the collections and stuff, you'll want to know that everything's happening as planned and lots of pieces that go along with that. So this question is really just high level, not so much what specifically should we be asking in an interview or a discussion, but what should we be looking for when we are talking to property managers and we're going through this screening or this interview process? What is it we want to look for in a property manager? Well, you know, Marco, one of the things that I think is important is it's easy for me to, let's say, list what I would look for. But I think that's the part people forget. We each have a different level of comfort and expectations. You may have somebody that truly would find it, I'll call it annoying, to hear from their property manager once a week, let's say. Due to whatever they have going on, they would find that way beyond acceptable. But then I'm sure you can share with me stories of people that would say if they hear from them once a week, that's not enough. So in other words, it's a relationship. It's totally a relationship built on your expectations and can they fulfill those expectations as you define them. And I think sometimes just having that first part of the conversation is important to know there's a match in your personality. We all go to these conferences we're talking about. There's people we just click with. We're not sure why, but we just gel with them. And then, of course, you can't just gel with them. You have to know that their, I'll call it, references are going to back up the feeling, hopefully the good feeling you have on the one that you do think is right for you. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that so many property management companies are different amongst each other. In other words, there's very few that are the same, unless you're dealing with a nationwide company that's more of a franchise or a chain. And there are a few of them now, but they're still not completely nationwide. They all operate so independently of each other. I know that one management company that I'm familiar with, they will literally call every single one of their clients every single month. They have two people on staff that do nothing but follow up and customer service. And they're proactive about it. They reach out to the person the landlord, their client. And that might be 
aggressive, that might be annoying, like you said. But then I know investors on the flip side that have said, I never want to hear from my property manager. I just want to get that monthly email with my statement showing me what's been deposited. And they don't want a phone call. They don't want follow up. They don't want anything. They just don't want to hear from anybody. So these are two extremes. Exactly. And I definitely work with a lot of different landlords. And I would tell you that sure enough, we could probably, if we have 75 landlords, we may have 75 different set of expectations. So we definitely try to personalize how we respond to it. And I think that's what they need to look for in their property manager. Make sure, as you said, that one that's truly aggressive and doing it once a week, for me, that would be ideal because that's my investment property and I just want to know it's on track. Now, are there going to be weeks I might be too busy for the call and I'll ask for a recap email, that's great too. But the point is that they know that I'm expecting a check-in and that's what I would feel comfortable with. Yeah. Now, does it make a difference how many units a manager or a management company manages? Does that play in? Is too many units a bad thing? Is too few a bad thing? What do you think? You know what? I don't think so because I think that I would probably gauge it more by kind of the average number of units. I'd want to know that, in other words, if I have a smaller portfolio and they, let's just use example numbers. Let's just say I'm building my portfolio and I have five units and everybody in their portfolio has a hundred or more. Well, then I might be concerned. Because then I might say, well, I don't meet the average size portfolio they're used to dealing with. I would guess that I'm going to fall to the bottom of the barrel. Now, that being said, during that interview process, I think I could get a feel for that. And if weekly calls are going to be done, whether I have five or 100, well, I'd certainly still be fine. But I think I'd be more concerned not with their total number of units. I'd be more concerned with the average size of the portfolio that mine fits into I'll call it their band wheel, what they're most comfortable with dealing with, you know. So if you have a portfolio of single family homes, you want to work with management companies that manage predominantly single family homes, maybe some duplexes. Sure. Again, I would be okay with the fact that they have multifamily. I'd more be concerned about their operational systems and how well they're responding. You know, one of the things we do that I think is key is when we give out a reference to somebody we're onboarding, somebody that's interested in our services, I will specifically look for a name of somebody that I feel has a portfolio that most closely aligns to the person that's interested in our services. Because like the last example, if you came to me with a portfolio of seven to 10 units and I give you a number of somebody that's got a hundred, well, that's great. He loves you, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily am going to fit in there. So I always try to match that up. So I think that would be something I'd tell them. First, I'd be looking for a personality type, communication style, as we just spoke of. And I think the third would be that the references I hear from are aligned with the same portfolio that you have. Okay. I heard somewhere, I don't remember where I heard this, but as a general rule of thumb, you want to have a management company that has one property manager for every 100 units. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or if that's a rule of thumb in the industry. Is there any truth to that? I've certainly heard the number. I don't think that that's a firm number, but I certainly have heard the number. I don't know if I'd call it a property manager per. I think one of the added dimensions, I'd say from my personal standpoint, okay, so it's just my viewpoint. It kind of depends how they break out the tasks because I've seen property managers where the person in the office, let's say, 
is the same person that's answering your calls, posting, doing what I would consider office work, you know, admin work, maybe answering leasing calls. But is that the same person that's going to be going out to show the unit? And is it the same person that's going to be doing the inspections? So sometimes I see it broke up more by whoever's doing, they almost have, let's say, a field person, and it might fall under maintenance to be doing those inspections. So even though there might be the feel-good inspection, if they have a strong maintenance man, he can be looking over the property at the same time as he's kind of speaking to the tenant. So let's say it's a proactive quarterly inspection. If he's the right person, he might be doing a lot of goodwill through that as well. So I think it's hard to judge it by just one person per hundred, just depending on how they divide up their tasks. Right. Kind of uh, getting ahead of myself here, but this is a hypothetical. Let's just say we're working with a property manager and we are no longer happy with them. We want to change to a new management company. There's a tenant in the property. How disruptive is it to the tenant in changing from one manager to another? Is it best to wait until a lease expires or comes up for renewal before changing? Or is it okay to change kind of in the middle of a lease? That's a really, really good question and certainly one I would put on your list of questions to ask prior to going to a manager because I think that somebody that is unhappy with you leaving, I would hope that they rise to the professionalism of their position and make sure that's happened smoothly for you. So no, I don't think it should be dependent at all upon the lease, but I think it should be dependent on both parties working together. I would think that the person that's exiting, the property management company that's exiting would professionally, or I would set my expectations that I'd want them to send out some form of communication, whether it be an email or a hard copy letter, depending on the community. I would expect something where they're introducing the fact that a new company's coming in and then the new company should do that. We do try to follow a general guideline that no later than the mid-month, that type of thing should happen. So even on onboarding a new client, I always say you want to onboard about 10, 12 days out from the first of the month. You almost don't want it too soon, but if they're supposed to be paying a new company and checks are getting written to a different place and different address, I think you always want to give people at least 10 to 12 days notice because there's going to be some that might be slow in responding to that and you want that time so that if they want to vet it out, they meaning the tenant and they want to place a call to be sure. You know, nowadays everybody's leery Marco of scam letters, scam emails. So it's probably going to take a little bit of a personal touch either on the tenant's part or the manager's part where they're going to want to be following up the new manager to be sure everybody knows it's all legit. Okay. My next question here, and these are kind of a little scattered, I'm zigzagging with my questions, but I'm just asking you these as they come to mind. So I'm just thinking, in your experience, what do you hear are the biggest challenges that landlords end up facing when dealing with their property managers? What are the problems and challenges that come up in working with property managers? I can name one right off the top of my head that is probably the most common thing I hear, which doesn't happen often, but whenever I hear it, it often comes down to slow or poor communication. In your experience, what are those? 
Though that's it. That's ironic because I was just waiting to hear what you're going to say because I was going to say I would tell you the number one reason we hear is definitely communication, not enough response. I had one most recently brought that up to me. You know, I was with a full manager. I was paying regular standard rate, which typically I'll define that as 10%, right? Mm -hmm. And she said, I just couldn't get answers back. You know, now in dealing with the property manager, I think that's the first thing you do want to know. And so, and I did kind of vet her a little bit, like to be sure were her expectations correct. And it sounded like they definitely weren't being met. And I think we do have to be tolerant. We are in a 24-7 society. And I know even like with our tenants, let's say, as opposed to our managers, we tell a tenant that we have a 24-7 phone line for them to use to call in any issues. We talk to the landlords about that. They don't necessarily have maintenance staff that's available 24-7. But I try to explain that it's probably more so that not necessarily that they think they're going to get a response. We're just in an instant age where somebody wants to call in the issue. So let's say we have a nurse coming off a night shift and she happens to look at her cabinet door, et cetera. Something's wrong. She just wants to download that information to her manager. She's not expecting that somebody's going to come out on a Saturday night and fix her cabinet door. So the point is, I think that the same should be true of expectations with a landlord to a manager. If they want to get a hold of them for any reason, they should at least expect some kind of email back and saying, hey, Marco, thank you for the email. I'll certainly get that information to you. I'm going to talk to the team tomorrow and I should have an answer for you tomorrow. So while you may not have received the answer that moment, you received something acknowledging your request and letting you know, you know, a good time frame. If you're not getting that, if you're just sending things off, whether they be calls, emails, text, and they're just going to a black hole, I'd say either, and I hate to say this unfairly, right, because you don't know the circumstances, but either you hired the wrong property manager or you need to sit down and reset expectations. Yeah, I think things come up from time to time and you have to just find out what's going on. Maybe there is a personal situation going on with the manager you're dealing with on a regular basis and, you know, maybe they were traveling. I mean, things happen, you know, we're human, life happens, right? Right. But if it's an ongoing problem, that's when you really start to need to call things into question and, and then pose the hard questions and see if this is an ongoing problem that can't be fixed or will not likely be fixed. That's, I think, when you make the decision to move on. I would agree. I would 100% agree. And I don't think you're zigzagging. I think we're really helping kind of describe what the interview process should include. And sometimes people get caught up with a checklist of, you know, what are the fees and what's this? And as you said, it's the most important relationship and I'd be evaluating the relationship. And this is kind of whether it be, uh, you know, someone that's dating or somebody that's hiring a property manager, you kind of need to know what those communication expectations are going to be and making sure you're aligned. Yeah. So assuming that, you know, you're going to conduct the interview over the phone because odds are you're probably not going to be meeting face to face and it's just too slow and clunky to do it via email, although email could be a way to conduct the um, quote unquote interview. But I look at these questions that you would want to ask a potential or even a current property manager in about seven categories. And I've just kind of broken them down and maybe we can just skim through them and you can share what are the most important or most common questions in each of these seven areas. Is that okay? 
Sure, that sounds perfect. Ultimately, I think this is what people are wanting to know or hear. So the first is about their experience, whether as an individual or a company, but what questions would you ask in that interview process a property manager or a management company about their experience? I think I'd ask them to share some stories of experiences that I might have concerned with. Assuming you're brand new, they may be a different set of questions that you may have, Marco, after so many years in the industry. So I think that that set of questions should align with what type of experiences As you know, you and I have both discussed, there's so many variables. Where's the property at? What type of tenants are you going to have? So maybe just going through some of those experiences and asking them to share what have some of your most difficult, most challenging experiences been, let's say, in placing the tenants. You know, I think I'd want a couple of stories that I would know might relate most closely to what I was looking for, whether it be on the screening end. And I think the screening one is a big one. If they're going to play the role of your leasing agent, we can't say enough about the screening process, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think I want to know a little bit about what they do during the screening process. Yeah. And like you said before, the types of properties are important and maybe how many properties they're currently managing. I mean, for me, that would kind of play in. If there was a management company, they had 700 properties under management or 700 doors. I wouldn't want there to just be two leasing agents or two managers in that company. That might be um, overkill for them. So I think you need to keep the size of the company in terms of the number of units in perspective. And to add to that, Marco, I think I'd also want to know, do they get seasonal help? Because we all know no matter how large the company, you're not going to staff for the highest volume. But what do you do during your high volume time? So let's say these summer months when lease expirations are so common prior to school starting and people kind of settling in, how do you handle that high volume period? Because you're pretty confident if they're a good property manager and they're going to be in business a long time, they're not going to hire and then have people doing nothing all winter. So what are they doing to alleviate that stress during the high peak month? So all in all, we want to consider how long they've been doing management, the types of properties they're managing, how many properties they're managing in terms of the number of doors. And for me, that would be relative to the number of managers that they actually have. And then you're talking about time and resources because it may be seasonal where they're going to be busier in the summer than in the wintertime. So can they scale and ramp up to address that growth in volume? Right. Yep. Absolutely. Do they know how to do a good job? Because it's like anything else. Some very large companies have learned how to reallocate resources as needed during peak periods. So they were able to, let's say, scale back on the number of good, solid full-time expenses. So I think that's a key factor in knowing a good company that can deliver that customer service. And again, those relationships, asking those questions that set you up to know how well they handle that. Okay. So the next area that I think is important is related to education. So questions about education, there's probably not too many questions in this area, but first and foremost, I know that certain jurisdictions or states require either a real estate broker's license or they have a specific property management license. So I assume that's the first question you should ask about education, right? I think so, but I actually would go beyond that. And this is for me personally. I am very, very involved locally with real estate investment associations as well as nationally. And I know you are as well. And I think that what it does is speak to your personal commitment 
to staying relevant in this industry. And this goes for every field, so I don't want to single out property management. But unfortunately, you can have somebody with 25 years experience, but they may not stay relevant, if you will, at all. And staying relevant includes a lot of different education. So in other words, I've heard firsthand from sheriffs on eviction. I've spoken to specific departments that go out there to meet with and what the changing trends have been. And in the Chicago area, how they alleviated some of the wait time and just what they did. Those are relationships that I developed. So not only was I able to educate myself more on the process, on the pros and cons, but those are also phone numbers and people now that I can contact if something wasn't going correctly. So you sometimes, unfortunately, get somebody that's been a property manager for X amount of years, but they're operating almost in a silo. And yes, they're doing their continuing ad if they're licensed as a real estate agent. But, you know, that's book knowledge compared to real street knowledge. What's going on? What's happening in 2017? Where are trends moving towards? And you really have to stay relevant in those areas. So what about certifications? How important is it to have certifications? Because there's many trade organizations in the property management space. Yeah, the larger associations definitely offer certifications. I think they're definitely relevant, but we see those more used at the higher level, more of the national property management companies that do those certifications. So I would say at a smaller level, if you're talking about portfolios more with 100 or less, you probably won't hear as much as a certification, but you should hear them being involved with their local association. Okay. So having these certifications often is what you're saying are not critically important. You don't have to be an NAA member or NARPM member or something like that. I think they're definitely important and they're definitely valuable. I guess what I'm saying is people that are handling portfolio sizes 100 or smaller, you may not hear it as much. So it really depends on your listeners and what types of portfolios they have. So in many of the multifamily class A properties, that's where you're going to hear of those the most. So I happen to be a member of NAA and CAA out of the Chicago area, but that's really more aimed towards the multifamily. And one of the reasons I keep that is they do a great job of lobbying and keeping their members abreast of what's going on with the lobby, both at the state and federal level. But it's not always 100% relevant to my single family owners and not necessarily my smaller multifamily. It's just good knowledge and it allows me to consult with them better on trends I see, but it's not necessarily directly relevant to their portfolio. Okay. Let's talk about some questions about their knowledge of landlord tenant laws, because this is obviously something that's pretty important, but most landlords don't wrap their heads around it because it's not something they necessarily need to know or really want to know. So what, if anything, should a landlord ask the property manager or prospective property manager if they are interviewing them about this category or this area of landlord tenant laws? Well, I think it truly is, like you say, it may be something they don't want to wrap their arms around, but 
yet I think it is important. And as you and I both know, and I know you're very astute with that as you select different areas to invest in, that's one of the first things they should think about for certain. And so when you're looking at a property manager in a specific area, they should be able to provide you the paperwork because all that is generally downloadable, you know, from the municipality's website when there's very specific ones, especially in the areas that are a little bit more difficult and a little bit more tenant friendly. So I think it's something that sometimes they say the property manager, it can also be if they're working with an attorney. Those are things just to be aware of because it really does make a difference, you know, and you really do need to know that your property manager is on top of the specifics to a county, et cetera. And I drill it down to a county. Sometimes we even see maybe what seems irrelevant to some people, but even at the municipality level, small things like annual inspections and fees that people aren't aware of, you know, and that could be in the same county, but a specific city has a little bit of a difference. So I think it is important that they at least discuss that with them and realize it could have repercussions for them. Is it fair to assume that they understand city, state, and federal laws when it comes to property management and how to deal with tenants? When you say they, you mean the property manager. Yeah. I mean, if it was me, I would assume that they know and you don't really have to quiz or question them on whether they're familiar with federal fair housing laws and federal laws, state laws, city laws related to management. Am I oversimplifying this? Well, yeah, I think, well, I mean, I think you're right. Let's put it that way. I definitely would agree that they should be aware of that, especially, but I think the way you're referencing it, or I think the way most people think of it is more on the screening end. And obviously we know the laws, but when it comes to the actual eviction or the lease ending and people aren't aware of in specific cities, it has to be 1159. In other cities, they do allow you to put the lease can end at 6 p.m. And you'd say, well, you know, what's the difference? Well, in the really kind of hot communities, if you can have someone leave at six and have cleaning teams go through there, let's say uh, student housing or, you know, trending housing for millennials, the new people are going to be in there. They're actually used to, let's say, the drill that they're putting their furniture with a truck overnight till they can get into their new place. So we have people that get in those type of communities, they get it down to kind of a zero day turnaround, if you will, Mm -hmm. on re-renting that place. So is that relevant? What time that lease can expire? Yep, it's certainly relevant in those cases. Okay. And just real brief, how do you feel about having pets and a pet policy and what should the property management company have in place for a pet policy if you're going to allow pets in your property? I would say that so much of it is dependent on your communities. I think I will say this. I'm seeing more and more people be pet friendly. I think as a society, we're more pet friendly. Yep. I mean, I've always had a pet, but I was not a renter, you know, and at one time I would say that I certainly saw more landlords object to it. I think flooring, people are making different flooring changes to accommodate that. They're decorating units differently. And certainly we as a society are much more pet friendly. So I definitely see it's trending that way. With it should come strong pet policy, because I think whether it be neighbors or others, and where I see a lot of people handling that is rules and regulations. So they have like in their lease subject to the rules and regulations in the handbook, and then they cover a lot of kind of nitpicky things that are really relevant, and they're able to cover them 
more thoroughly in a separate policy guide. Okay. So the next set of questions or the next area that's very important to me is the whole thing about filling vacancies and retaining tenants because at the end of the day, you want to keep your property occupied for as long as possible and have as few turnovers as possible. So if you or I or anyone else was interviewing a property management company, what would you want to know or what would you want to ask them related to filling vacancies and retaining tenants? I would ask first and foremost about the retention policy. Because even if you were to get a brand new three-unit property, more than likely there's going to be people in that property. If it's a single-family home, I guess if you've just finished the rehab, you'll be bringing them in. But let's just start with retention from that perspective. I think they should have a good, strong policy, strong operations manual of how they're handling the retention. And I think what's probably most important is, yeah, we can go through all types of incentives people give on the renewals, how to handle it more like a renewal so that, you know, we are definitely seeing people stay in the same place. You know, when you really kind of walk through it from both perspectives, the tenant doesn't want to leave any more than you want them to leave. It's inconvenient for everybody to go through that move process annually. So I think that I find the people that are most successful with it are on top of it early. I think the earlier, the better. You know, that being said, that's all relative. You can't really ask them at the six-month point, right? But, you know, doing your inspection, certainly at the six-month and nine-month point, if it is an annual lease, to make sure you proactively know what the place looks like so that you can be zero-day ready. And I'd say, you know, getting out whatever letters, whatever incentives you could to have the residents stay. And when I say that, that's relative to not giving away things, but making sure that you're keeping the rent at a rate that's affordable for them to choose and select to stay versus to start over because we know rents are going up. I don't say that you shouldn't increase it, but by all means, you should make it a reasonable rate so that they're aware of what the current rates are, but they know that you're giving them an incentive to stay. And I think that expediting that process, not falling asleep, I see a lot of property managers kind of fall asleep during that process. You have to get those signatures early. As soon as you get agreement, get them locked into a new lease, get all that ready. And then from the new resident perspective, screen, screen, screen should be to property managers what location, location, location is to a real estate agent. It's just you can't do enough to make sure that you're picking that right person. Right. Some people will advise that you ask a property manager how long it takes them to fill a vacancy. And I'm not so sure that's a really relevant question because I think a lot of that has to do with the location, like the neighborhood that you're in. And second, if you're changing the target rent that the property management company wants to ask, then you can speed that up or you can delay it by increasing or decreasing that. So I don't think it's a fair question to ask how long does it take to fill a vacancy. That kind of goes back to that checklist. And I don't think hiring a property manager can be just done by that checklist. You right. know, if you're just going to sit and put that spreadsheet together and say, well, this guy said 31 days. Oh, over here, he said he could do it in 15. You know, you better know something about that person. And there's a lot, as you said, too many factors involved to say that. And plus, they could tell you anything they want because at the end of right. the day, they might be trying to quote unquote buy your business. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the way it works. Yeah, I absolutely agree. What about the flip side of that? Is, is there any value in asking how many tenants they've evicted over the past year? I mean, does that go to show how strict or on the ball a manager is? Or, or is that really just showing a manager that has just a lot of bad tenants because they didn't know how to screen the tenants properly in the first place? 
Boy, that's a tough one because I think eviction is also a really gray area because if they've had a lot of evictions, I'd want to know a little bit about those stories because generally that is the last step. I use the term smaller landlords, right? The ones where we're saying 100 or below, they're growing a portfolio, they're single family homes. That's generally the last resort. So a property manager could tell you, I've never had an eviction, but that doesn't mean they haven't removed a lot of bad tenants. They've just never gone to court with it. I mean, in some of our areas, going to court on an eviction, I mean, that can run thousands of dollars, and I mean close to $10,000, depending on which types of cities. So a landlord generally, while there may be a bad tenant that was placed in it, will find every way to get them out and a property manager to get them out before they're going to spend that money on the eviction. So they could show zero evictions, but they could still have had plenty of problems. Let's put it that way. Right. So to me, it's all about going in on the right foot, screening the right person. Does that mean it never gets done? No, there's certainly obviously life changes. But even with life changes, one of the things we discuss is, you know, there are plenty of charitable organizations out there. I mean, I have had people with really good, stable jobs have change of, you know, life events that have caused them reason to get behind on the rent. And I probably was as shocked as anybody to find that, you know, we referred them to charitable organizations. We always give that list out at the time that they move in. We always suggest that as best business practice. So that way it's a topic that's already been discussed. And if they have the proper legal notices from you, organizations, for instance, like a Catholic Charities will give them temporary relief of rent. So we're not talking about applying for some type of housing. And it's a fairly quick process. And if it can get them back on board and on the right track, but we always make it known from the beginning, this is definitely a tenant issue, not the landlord issue. And if they have to go through the legal process, that's the route it's going, you know? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about services provided and fees charged, because this is what a lot of people think of when they think about property management. What fees do you charge? How much do you charge a month? Do you mark things up, et cetera, et cetera. So what should someone be looking at, looking for, or asking about when it comes to services and fees? Well, when you're talking about the actual fees, I think you mentioned probably the majority of them. You know, one of the things I would be looking for is what's your rate? You know, so as we know, depending on what type of property your listeners are invested in, it could run as low as 5%, depending on if it's a large multifamily, to as high as probably 12%. I think it's probably mostly the norm at 10%. So, but then you take a look at, are they going to charge you? There's generally a separate leasing fee for placing the tenant that's generally not included with their monthly management fee. And that, as a rule, appears to run at one month's rent. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much nationwide as a standard. You could probably get somebody to discount it depending on the number of units you give them, stuff like that. I would say that I'd be looking probably more if you could get them to put you into longer term leases as opposed to trying to cut them on that fee, I would probably look for longer term leases. I think it's common to try to ask now for two years or three years. Mm -hmm. And with a savvy leasing agent, they would realize that 
that could be certainly delivered in a very professional way because it's to the tenant's advantage as well. You talked about certainly we see the upcharge vary on maintenance. Sometimes they upcharge depending on what type of maintenance it is. I think where I'd be looking for when it comes to the fees is kind of getting a better idea of that relationship. When you start to get into what I'll say is a transactional type of relationship, it's all about the fee. And if it's just all about the fee, then to me, you know, it removes that personal relationship from the management. So I'd want to feel like I'm with a company that has a sense of that I'm an investor that's out there and up and growing and I'm not looking to be just a transaction. I would draw the analogy of choosing a bank. We all know that banks have fees and we all have come to accept that each bank has specific fees. But we also understand that when we get into a relationship style banking, we're not just going to get sacked with a fee for every single thing, you know, that they understand the value of our relationship. So I think I'd be more into that. They should be able to provide that to you as part of the agreement you sign. So it wouldn't hurt to ask. And then let's just use an example. They may have an eviction fee, for instance, and you're going to be paying attorney's costs. But if you think of it reasonably like a a business person, there's going to be a lot of effort that's going to be placed on the property management company as well when it comes to resources to go through and be going back and forth. There's going to be a lot of extra time involved with the eviction. So it's not unreasonable for them to ask for some kind of compensation for that time. And while you may be frustrated, if everybody kind of agreed going in on the tenant and something did go wrong, there can be an expectation of fees when it comes to that. When it comes to, let's say, return check fees, things like that that are specific to tenant behavior, those should be passed on to the tenant and they should be kept and collected by the management company. When it comes to actual late fees, I've seen that as a source of controversy. We've never made a practice of keeping those fees, but I know there are management companies that do keep them and they feel that they've earned those. And you do, you know, you do put extra effort into collecting those late fees when you have a real problem. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important it's collected and then you could work with your manager on opening that discussion. Yeah, on who keeps it. Anytime there's extra duties. I think you may find that they come to you with discussing fees. Yeah, I guess the bottom line is read the management agreement, you know, get a copy of it and comb through it. And from my perspective, there's three main categories of fees. There's the regular monthly management fees. There are the lease up fees. And then there may be maintenance fees that are related to repairs and maintenance. So they may be marking it up because they have to outsource the bids, manage the contractors. Maybe they have their own in-house team. But, you know, that could be 5 to 10%. Your lease-up fee could be up to one month's rent. I've seen some companies do half a month rent on the uh, lease-up. And management fees on a monthly basis, I typically see between 8 to 10%. That's typically what I see. I've never seen anything as low as 5 or 6 And it's pretty rare to see anything as high as 12 at least from, you know, my experience. So... Definitely 5% though is really common in your larger multifamilies, but kind of 20 units and above. So that is definitely a different kind of beast as the normal single family investor would be dealing with. And some of the 12s in some of the areas, they are definitely starting to ask for a little bit more, but I would agree with you. 10% is definitely the norm. Okay. Anything else you want to add about fees and services? Should there be a minimum expectation as far as what they're delivering on their monthly service for the fee? 
Honestly, I think that's pretty standard. I mean, take a look at their agreement just to be sure you don't have somebody. I guess it's kind of like bidding out a contract for rehab of a job. You should find that they all fall in line with pretty much all the same services that we've discussed. And if you find somebody that has an abnormality to that agreement, I would question it and see why they, and if they have a good reason, I'd probably be open to hearing it. I think one thing that should be mentioned is the fee should be based on the rent collected, not on the rent due, because I know that some property management companies have tried to pass this along where they expect to be paid whether the rent is collected or not, but it really should be based on rent collected, right? Well, let's put it this way. If you're talking about vacant units, I'd be 100% in agreement with you. Okay. If you're talking about people that are difficult paying, I'd probably say they're doubling. If they're a good company, they're doubling down and probably giving you twice the effort as normal. So I don't know that I could make an argument for the fact that they shouldn't be paid. Okay. You, know, you may come to some agreement on that. Let's put it that way. Okay. I never thought of it that way. That's a good point. Okay, so I guess read the agreement and see what is being charged and what you're getting in return for it. Yes. Fair enough. Moving along here, questions about how money is handled and where the funds are held. I guess the first question that I think about here and what I would want to ask is how do you guys collect rent? Not you specifically, but a property management company because some are very much in the times and they use direct deposit. They set them up on auto pay. Others will still accept money orders or certified check. That could be a function of the demographic of the tenant that you're working with. But what should investors learn about property management companies when it comes to funds and handling money? Well, it's an area that I'm probably acutely in tune to. <laughs> and I would say that you just described that perfectly where you kind of stopped yourself that first off, they definitely need to be up on the times and have the availability for ACH and direct deposit and Chase Quick Pay and, you know, all the various options. Certainly for most demographics, I would include most demographics and they want that convenience, right? They want the ability to pay electronically and they don't want to write a check. Mm -hmm. That being said, there are communities that you described that are non-banking demographic that have gone to currency exchanges for years, have always purchased a money order, and they're not opening a bank account anytime soon. So I would say that it's very important that the property manager handle that as need be. So in other words, you cannot force that situation. Mm -hmm. If you're in those type of demographics, you need to have a process that accommodates that. And if that's old fashioned paper, and that's what it takes to get that collected, a stamped envelope and a return envelope, then I think it's important. That's what's going to keep their collection rates. There's no sense in playing an arrogance game as well. We don't do that. I would say your collections will suffer for that that there are still communities that need that and you have to provide that. And of course, vice versa. If they're doing it paper-based and they were to wave a wand, well, I don't need the ACH, I don't need the direct deposit, I would say the same for that. The average millennial, they don't know a check register the way you and I do. And I guess I'm dating myself, but to actually reconcile a checkbook to what was written in a checkbook versus what was taken out of the bank, they would truly just log in and they'd say, this is my balance. So they don't know how to reconcile the fact that something still might have not appeared and cleared your bank because they're not writing a paper check. So they don't have anything that didn't clear. So they don't even necessarily understand that terminology. 
So I think you need to be in tune with the fact that there are certainly many different styles happening right now. I used to have those stats on the Federal Reserve, just a number of checks that they processed at one time compared to it's down well over 50%, like within a 10-year period of how many written paper checks come through the Federal Reserve now. So paper checks are not part of the equation to the extent they were. They still are, but not like they once were. Even your seniors and your direct deposits, all the Social Security checks, all that's going direct deposit. They're no longer doing checks. So I think that's a reasonable expectation that the property manager needs to be able to offer you all those services. Right. Okay, good point. Does it matter where they keep the tenant security deposit, and this may be affected by state laws, but is that worth asking to find out if it's held in trust or if it's in a group account? Does it matter? Yes, it definitely does matter. And as you just said, it's probably more specific to state and city municipality laws. So of course, they should be able to explain to you why it's going to be held in a certain type of account. I know we have in the city of Chicago, there's a requirement that that account number is listed right on the lease. So it is like considered kind of a tenant disclosure that they have to be told where that money is being held, what account number, and they have to be given a disclosure annually with how much interest is being credited to their account, even though it's like 0.001, you know. But the actual disclosure has to be given out each year in addition to the credit of that interest. So yes, it's definitely important that they're aware of what the laws are. Okay. Now, what about payments as far as a landlord? I know this does differ from property management company to management company and even state to state because there are different laws as far as when or how long a management company can hold on to collected funds. But what's the expectation here as far as when I should receive my collected rents? Well, and I guess I don't want to set everybody's expectations. Right. I've certainly heard of a um, couple difficult cases. Let's just speak to kind of the audience of the investor that's just getting started, just out there, maybe has their first five properties. They more than likely have taken on, let's say, five mortgages to go with them, and they're just starting to get their cash flow moving in the right direction setting their expectations of having some extra reserves so they're not waiting for those payments that desperately. But the reality is some of the new investors are out there kind of risking it. They don't have a pool of money to protect themselves when they first get started. So knowing what that is, is important. I mean, I would say just from the Federal Reserve perspective, third business day is a reasonable time period after the rent has been deposited with the property manager that they should distribute it. But yeah, I hear more and more stories with property managers that have specific dates. And that makes some sense from a business perspective. You know, maybe they'll give all funds out on the 10th of the month. So I think it will speak more to when you're interviewing them, kind of the clientele that they're used to dealing with. And if they're used to dealing with larger investors and that the 10th is just fine for that distribution date, and they may have like three distribution dates in the month, you just then, depending on where you're at, have to know if that's a level of comfort that you can work with. So knowing what those expectations are is definitely important and reviewing that. So you can align yourself as the investor with 
what your expectations should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just need to ask because I know there are management companies out there that will collect rent on this month, but they won't make those funds available until either the end of the month, the beginning of the month, or sometime around, let's say, the 10th of the following month. So they actually, I wouldn't say they're sitting on those funds, but they have up to a 30-day lag time or period of time before they release those funds to the landlord. Why? I'm not exactly sure because they do have a reserve of 250 or $500 in reserve at any time point in time as a float in case there are minor maintenance and repair issues that come up. So again, you know, ask, read the contract and see what you're comfortable with. And I don't think that is negotiable, but it could be. Yeah, it could be depending on the size of their average size of the portfolio of the clients they're dealing with. Sometimes they'll make an exception. Yeah. And I think the more properties you have with that management company, probably the better you're able to negotiate both on rates and terms. Yes, I would agree. Okay. Now, lastly, questions about property maintenance. What should we be asking as landlords about how they handle maintenance, uh, anything related to maintenance? What should we be looking for? Well, I would just be looking for the fact that they're responsive to that phone call. I would be looking for them to be kind of documenting the sequence of events so that nothing kind of slips through the cracks because everyone can, let's say, make a mistake. But if the process is well documented, images of what went wrong when it gets called in, images of once it's rectified, I think all that should become part of the file. I think that helps the property manager and yourself have a good understanding of that property at year end, be able to do an analysis of, you know, maybe something that they really had referred you to, let's say, I'm going to use an example of a new roof, but that was just not something you could do at this time. You know, it's something that needs to be done. But if you can analyze at the end of the year through the documentation that, oh, you know, we're fixing this and then we're fixing that and then we're fixing this, maybe we better just go ahead and get this roof fixed. You know, so if everything is well documented on that process, it helps you make good decisions too as the investor as to when is the time to make certain things, to change certain things or upgrade them, et cetera. So I'd want a well documented process. I'd want them to be responsive to the needs and again, responsive within your budget limitations. I'd want them to refer to the lease when there's requests that are outside the boundaries of, especially with single family. Many of the single family agreements might not include repairs for all items. And I think it's important that that property manager realizes just what type of agreement that you're looking to have and what type of expectations you have on what you'll cover and what you consider beyond normal wear and tear. Yeah, I find that many management companies will have, let's say, $500 on reserve. And if there are maintenance requests or repairs that come up, you pre-authorize them through the management agreement to go out and deal with the issue if it's under 500 or sometimes maybe under 250. And if it's over that, they will contact you for authorization to spend more. And is that standard practice or is there a standard practice out there when it comes to maintenance issues? No, I think that is standard practice. I mean, that's certainly common to hear that, that they're authorized to spend. But I guess maybe I should have led in by saying that I'm okay with that. I think that's acceptable. But I still think that that threshold has to be, first of all, a threshold you're comfortable with. You know, like you just said, 250, 350, you know, kind of depends on that investor, very much dependent on how they feel. 
But then just as importantly, I still want that process documented because it could signal a couple of things. You know, it could signal poor quality of the maintenance person if the same thing is getting addressed all the time or it symbolizes beyond normal wear and tear. You know, we often kind of laugh because there's certain things that as a homeowner, I've probably never experienced. And yet from a tenant perspective, it's this common call all the time. Well, what's the difference? You know what I mean? Is the difference in how we're caring for that particular household feature. I recently saw one with cabinet doors that were kind of like misaligned. And the tenant just didn't understand, like, well, what was the problem? Well, that's not normal wear and tear that cabinet doors are coming off. You know, maybe there are small children in the house that aren't being told that if you can't get into the drawer, you just don't yank it until it opens, you know. Right. So I think it's important to document them. So while the funds might be there to fix that drawer, is anybody addressing the cause of why would it be that this drawer keeps doing this? Right. Well, that kind of segues to another question here is what about performing preventative maintenance or property inspections? I know some companies will go once every X number of months, could be twice a year, to do a scheduled or even a surprise visit when it comes to you know, a preventative inspection. What do you think of that? And should there be a regular inspection? I think that's really good. I really do. I think quarterly, if not semi-annual, is probably acceptable. I think it's a good habit. I don't know if surprises with all the disclosures required in today's world are probably as common as maybe they once were. Between all the different various notices of going into a unit, etc., You probably can't do it quite the surprise, but I think it's important either way. Quite frankly, if you have somebody that's really not taking care of things, they probably are not aware of the proper way to take care of it. So they're so surprised or not surprised that they don't think it's a problem, you know. So I think that it becomes a good education piece for the maintenance man. I think those are key. One of the things I'm really, really fond of is taking advantage of these YouTube channels to set up like preventative maintenance, you know, just very short one minute, two minute videos. And I really think it's a great proactive manager that requires that, you know, kind of at move in, almost your kiosk style move in that you kind of have to sit at this computer and Again, keep them short. I wouldn't want any 30-minute lecture. You just want a couple of videos on how to turn off the water to the toilet if there were to be an emergency. A couple of things like that, how to change an air filter. Single-family home, they should know how to change it. They should know what your expectations are. So I think inspections are good. They give you the opportunity, and those pre-videos give you the opportunity to say, do you remember when we showed you that this filter had to be changed every month? It doesn't appear it's changed. Right. You know? I want your opinion on something. I kind of hear arguments for and against this, and to me, I'm completely indifferent because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether contractors are outsourced, in other words, the handyman, or if they are part of the in-house team with the property management company, but how do you feel about the handyman and the maintenance crew, whether they're employees of the property management company or they're contractors that they're brought in and outsourced? Any opinion? Um, I guess, again, it's painting with that broad brush. So I would say there's bad and good of both. For me, the most important thing, if I was hiring for an internal team or external, it's something that I've certainly repeated many times over the years is they need to keep in mind, and I think this is one of the most common problems, is they need to keep in mind that it's the 
property manager slash real estate investor, owner, landlord, whatever you want to refer to them, that's paying their salary. So when they go out to the job, they need to remain professional and not be explaining things to the tenant of what they're doing that can most definitely come back misquoted. And, you know, this guy said I should have had a new air condition because let's just say in the perfect world, the serviceman might feel that it's beyond its use. And in the perfect world, they'd love to see them replace the air condition. But I have a investor that does not have the funds to replace the air condition at this time. I don't expect to get a call from my tenant telling me that the maintenance man just told him that it's supposed to be replaced. They set up for a a really negative situation when that comes up. And quite frankly, I will have a long talk with that maintenance person that that's not the person that you give your assessment to. That's not the person that's paying your bill. Right. And that you need to remain most professional there. And quite frankly, that involves not a lot of talking. I'm here to do my job and then write up a good assessment of what you think. So it's really up to the property manager to set the proper expectations with the contractor before he goes out there and ends up talking to the tenant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we've had, you know, outside professional companies come in. In fact, one in particular that I could think of is a couple of years ago was an HVAC man and did just that, you know, just shared too much information. And again, just information that was misinterpreted to mean like, oh, I should have a new one. And you can't quite answer, you know, you're in a, my case, we're in a professional situation. So I'm not going to say anything to the tenant. But Again, quite frankly, I wish I had a newer car, you know. So, yeah, we could all wish for things were new and easier, but sometimes the investor owner has to make what's the best decision for the cash flow of that property and for where they're at during the life cycle. How long should it take a property manager to respond to a tenant complaint or a repair request that's not an emergency? Short answer is what's reasonable, but <laughs> what is reasonable? Here's what I think what I'd say. Probably the best thing when you say a non-emergency, the best thing to do is to set the expectations of the tenant. So if you know, for instance, that there was an exceptional rain and it came down and there's flooding involved. And so your maintenance man will be stretched thin to be checking different properties and doing different things. I think as long as you set reasonable expectations, you share with them, we've just had what's considered 100-year rain, whatever it is sometimes, and so there will be a delay in, you know, you're not going to get that immediate response. But I think as long as you set expectations, you keep in contact with the tenants. So I'm not really sure I can put a number to that because there would be so many factors there on just what it is that needs to be done, you know? Okay, I'm going to throw one last question out at you because all of these seven categories that we're talking about here, everything can be turned into a question. And this is all good discussion. And at the end of the day, we could talk about this for hours. So, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to just common sense and having a good chemistry and feeling about the manager or the management company. But I'm going to throw one more question out at you regarding property maintenance. And that is this. If the property manager calls you up and says something's broke, needs to be fixed, and maybe they have an in-house guy, maybe they don't, but they come back to you with a price estimate or even a quote. Should you as a landlord, 
shop it around and have either the property manager get one or two more quotes or maybe you go you know outside of that relationship with the property manager and have one or two other independent people come in and provide you a quote as well just to make sure that whatever price the property manager is giving you is competitive or better than what is out there for market rate that to me is more based on that relationship Mm -hmm. And I would not think that you should need to go outside if you have a good relationship and whatever that project is, you feel like you'd like to. I think it's a discussion you need to have with them. Mm -hmm. But I think you could cause some harm to the relationship. I mean, it almost would seem to me that you would not be in a good if you were just offering to assist them and say, you know, I think I have a couple others, but I would get a sense of there's almost a breakdown of the relationship happening that you'd want to go outside. Otherwise, to me, I would go right to them and say, hey, you know what, I'd like to get a couple more bids. I think that I may be able to beat that bid and I don't want to move forward with that. Yeah. And you should be able to have that conversation. You know, I don't know. I'm not sure how every property manager would take that. Well, I agree with you. I think you should keep it within the relationship and just have them give you one or two other bids or quotes. Because, you know, if you're doing work on your house and you're going to get new flooring put in, as an example, you would probably want to get quotes from two or three, maybe four different installation companies or contractors and then go with the ones that you like the best, feel are most competent and provide you competitive pricing. So, you know, it doesn't matter if it's my rental property, I would want to do the same thing. I agree. The fact that you have some competitive bids is probably just a good practice anyway, especially when you're getting into outside of that 250 or under or that 350 or under threshold. You're starting to talk about different projects, by all means, a competitive bid they should be offering you to start with. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to be taken from this and certainly we could talk about this for hours. Let's kind of wrap it up here. Linda, tell us about your new book and then tell our listeners how they can find you and get more information about the services you provide and what you do. Oh, sure, Marco. My new book is My Landlord Helper. So the first book you talked about was The Daily Inspirations, and I thank you for that. That's just kind of letting everybody know that (laughs) managing rental property is not easy when you decide to get into it if you are going to self-manage your property. And the My Landlord Helper is just on the same theme, but this one is just more the actual operations and different thoughts about ACH and different methods and operations, especially for the small uh, landlords that are getting started. Like any entrepreneurial endeavor, we are just in an age with so many different softwares available to us, et cetera, web-based applications that make it so easy to really professionalize your real estate investments from day one and treat it like a business. And I would say that's what that book kind of focuses on in today's discussion. Just making sure you're putting everything in place as a business so that there are documentations, whether it be payments, security deposits, leasing, you know, all the different things you talked about. You did such a great job of making sure you kind of covered all that. And I'd say that's what the book kind of does is just give them an idea of looking at it. So it's called My Landlord Helper, and that's kind of what we do. So we're in a little bit different of a role. We assist people that do want to manage their own property. So it's probably more like them having a virtual assistant, but not the type they think of where they offshore a project to them. We really are like them wanting to hire staff for the office, but not feeling like they really have a need for having somebody in their office full time. We turn out to be their partner to help them successfully grow their portfolio. Perfect. 
Well, maybe, Linda, what we can do is have you come on again in a future episode to talk about the pros and cons of self-managing your property and the tools you would use to use it and how you would go about doing that. How's that sound? Absolutely. That sounds great. I'm sure that either way, I know that they're in good hands. If they're listening to you, they're getting lots of great ideas. Really, Marco, you provide a lot of value and I'm sure your audience thanks you, but I'll make it official. (laughs) Well, I hope so. (laughs) Well, thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Yes. And we'll talk soon. Thanks, Linda. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.